This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you're keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is photojournalist and investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial related phenomena research, Paula Harris. Paula will be with us for the first segment to discuss a very important UFO case that most of you may not be familiar with. Some of you have emailed asking if there was a typing error on the promotional image of this show. Since it says New Mexico 1945, and you thought we were going to discuss Roswell once again. Negative. This story happened in August of 1945, two years before Roswell. Not only that, we have the testimony of both witnesses, Jose Padilla and Remy Baca, nine and seven years old, respectively. Unfortunately, due to a very powerful snowstorm, telephone lines in the area where Remy Baca resides in the state of Washington 
are all down. We have tried for hours to no avail. You may hear me mention to Paula that Remy and Jose are coming after her. That segment was recorded before I attempted to contact Remy. Nonetheless, Jose Padilla joined me and discussed the case by himself. As you know, I don't use the word believe, but tonight, although I don't have the evidence right in front of me, you will truly enjoy listening to Jose recount what happened 65 years ago and how he was separated from his best friend for almost six decades before they were recently reunited and are sharing this story. Jose, a curious child, just like I was, extracted a piece of the craft because he knew that one day it could be important and he wanted people to believe what they saw. Paula Harris and Jose Padilla will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all our shows. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And speaking of members, here's another reminder to you, Veritas member. I have decided to do a special show for the holidays. We want to do a chat because I want everyone to participate. And time zones differ around the world and prevent a lot of you from participating. On December 24th, I will air a show without a guest. It will be just me answering your questions on the air. Many of you frequently ask me specifics about the show, about me, about the topics we discuss, feature plans and ideas. That's when I decided to produce a special edition of Veritas called Inside Veritas. Your participation is requested. How? By submitting one question. Anything goes. The requirement is that you have to be an active Veritas member and it has to be one question only. The deadline is December 19th, but I may stop much earlier if a limit of questions is reached. So don't wait too long. Furthermore, I will raffle a metal cased 8 gigabyte USB drive containing season two among those of you who submit a question. So what are you waiting for? Submit your questions soon. Here are the instructions. Go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the contact button. You will see a link to Inside Veritas with instructions. I want to make sure that those who don't have anywhere to go during Christmas Eve will not be alone that night. When you listen to Veritas, you are never alone. Thank you for your participation and good luck in winning the USB drive. So don't wait. Let's have some fun you may be the winner. And to Veritas members, don't forget you have a new amenity available to you, Veritas TV. Go to our website and click on the TV button, and I'll be uploading interviews and lectures every so often. For this week, I have uploaded two additional lectures. One of them is by Veritas veteran Antonio Juneus, the Vatican ET connection. And the other one, recorded on the same day at a MUFON chapter, on June of 2010, is Maurizio Bayata, and he is providing to us unreleased footage from the late Lieutenant Colonel Philip J. Corso and his diary, the truth about his life and death. Could Colonel Corso have been murdered? Maurizio seems to think that that is the case. Take a look at that. It's very explosive. A lot of material that I hadn't heard before. And the featured lecture we have this month is from Dr. Claude Swanson, 
Science of the Paranormal. And Dr. Swanson will be on Veritas to do a full show very soon. For 2011, you can expect more in-person videos. Once again, go to Veritas TV by clicking on the TV link on our website. It's a new amenity for you, Veritas member. And the coughing and the sneezing have started. Don't say I didn't warn you. Get your MMS right from us, whether you live in the United States or abroad. And if you buy health supplements anywhere, you are paying too much. Take a look at our source featured on our website and compare. You can buy as many products as you need, and they have thousands, and only pay $5.95 for shipping, and you also receive a 30-day return policy. What more can you ask? Check them out. And the holidays are almost here. Instead of wondering what in the world to give a loved one, have you thought of giving the gift of truth? Why not buy them a Veritas subscription or the 8 gigabyte USB drive where they can just plug it in and listen to season one in its entirety with lots of bonuses? Season two will be available for shipping once the year ends. So stop scratching your head. You know, many gifts are put away in a drawer forever. With Veritas, you know you'll be making a difference in someone's life. Go to our website, veritasshow.com, and order today. And to get in touch with me, just go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the contact button, and join me on Facebook. Born on the edge of Ground Zero, living in the shadow of Area 51, two little Hispanic children experienced an extraordinary event that occurred in August of 1945. Jose Padilla, age 9, and Remy Baca, age 7, witnessed a saucer crash on Padilla land in the town of San Antonio, New Mexico. They were witness to one of the most spectacular events in UFO history. Get ready for Jose Padilla's detailed account of what happened in their childhood, what they saw, the actual crash, the creature's appearances, the peace they took, the military cleanup, and an in-depth analysis of the significance of this case. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. Paula Harris and Jose Padilla are coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Paula Leopitzi Harris is an Italo-American photojournalist 
an investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena research. She's also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She has studied extraterrestrial-related phenomena since 1979 and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 1986, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek with his UFO investigations and has interviewed many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. She has been an investigator of the UFO phenomena for the last 30 years. In 1997, Paula met and interviewed the late Colonel Philip J. Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became a personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in publishing his book, The Day After Roswell. She has a regular column in X-Times and Area 51 UFO magazines. She has written for Nexus Australia, Explora, and Open Minds magazine, among other publications. Paula lives in Rome, Italy, and Boulder, Colorado, and has a master's degree in education. She teaches history and photojournalism and online classes in exopolitics for Dr. Michael Salas Exopolitics Institute, for which she is the International Liaison Director. And directly from Boulder, Colorado, I have the pleasure to introduce once again our good friend Paula Harris. Hello, Paula. How are you? Fine. How are you, Mel? Fine. Thank you. And uh, first of all, I always, when I think of your name, I think of the name Carmen Sandiego. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Where in the world is Paula Harris these days? Well, I used to do a lot more traveling than I'm doing. Right now, I'm pretty stationary in Boulder, Colorado. I have an office here. And for the last two months, I've been finishing up my last ExoPolitics book. How's that going? Well, I just finished it and submitted it to the printer. And uh, it's called uh, ExoPolitics, A Stargate to a New Reality. And it is filled with military interviews, pilot interviews. There's the Paul Hellyer interview that I did this year about his book, and just a lot of information and a kind of a look at the future. So it's a really, really, probably my best book and will be my last exopolitics book. I've written three exopolitics books. And when is this one coming out? It will be uh, debuting at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. I will have a table there and will be, um, you know, there with my books. And I want to add another thing, Mel. The story that I'm going to be talking about is about 50 pages also of this book. It will be in this book, the interview that I did with the two witnesses. Well, before you start there, let me just say that I will be at the International UFO Congress in Arizona. So those who are listening, uh, get prepared. Try to make your reservations as soon as possible. It's going to be a big one. Paula and a lot of other uh, people from the UFO circle will be there with us. But I have to tell you, Paula, I recently put a, an announcement to the show on our website with a picture of you and the New Mexico, uh, a New Mexico background. And it says New Mexico, 1945. And a few people emailed saying, Mel, I think you may have, Hey, you may have uh, mistyped 1945. You probably meant 1947. And people don't know that another very important crash UFO crash happened there in 1945, not in Roswell, but in San Antonio, New Mexico. Is this a story you're referring to? Absolutely, Mel. And people are 
really a little bit conditioned to believe that Roswell was the first crash because there's been heavy research on the Roswell case by Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and Stanton Friedman. But let me assure you that whoever was uh, observing humanity around Roswell was observing humanity around the Trinity site where the atomic bomb was being tested. And the San Antonio case was really in 1945, two months after the um, uh, atomic bomb testing in that area. So there was heavy UFO sightings. And after about 60 years, we have witnesses that talk about this very real craft, a crash, and it was the first. It's an interesting story because when the recovery and the cleanup was being done, the soldiers that did it were not used to crashes and really made, bungled it up and did some really interesting things about cleaning up the crash. Give a summary. In a few minutes, we'll have... Uh... Remy Baca and Jose Padilla, who are the, the, the witnesses who were there when they were just at the age of seven and nine. And uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Remy a few weeks ago, and I was completely uh, blown. They blew, he blew my mind with what he had to say. Uh, the st story is so not only credible, but they also have a piece of the craft that they were able to extract from it. Yeah, it's for me it's the most one of the it's probably the second most important story I've ever done in my life. I want to I really assure your listeners though it took me a year to work on this. I began in May of of 2009, so it's not something that I do just overnight. It's taken me that long <clears throat> to research it, to go up there to question uh Remy to talk to Jose to look at the history around this. But anyway, both Jose and Remy were children. They were born on the edge of Ground Zero, where the bomb um, was tested. And they, at the age of nine, Jose, and at the age of seven, Remy, witnessed a saucer crash on the Padilla land in San Antonio. Now, San Antonio, New Mexico, it's New Mexico, not Texas, is right. one hour from Roswell. And these two little boys, and he'll tell you the details, were looking for a cow that, were, that had just calved because they worked on the land. The Padilla dad had said, go out and look for this cow. So they, on their horses, went to look for the cow. And as they were there, there was a storm. And this is so important. You have to look at everything around the crashes of these saucers because they don't just naturally crash. There was a storm that had lightning and thunder, and there was a radar tower. And we know for a fact that the heavy radar, the very um, powerful radar, brought down quite a few craft in that area. And there was a radar tower close to the land, and the two little boys uh, had weathered out the storm and watched a craft come in, have, uh, you know, an accident. In other words, it fell to the ground, and I think it was like a half-a-mile trench it left. And uh, Remy will tell you about that. And they watched the whole thing and slowly walked up to the craft, and a piece of it had broken off. And they were uh, some maybe 500 yards, I think, away, and they could see creatures that were sliding back and forth. Remy will tell you that he heard high-pitched sounds 
And the two little boys interpreted it like it was that the creatures were either injured, hurt, or reacting. Now, they were very scared. They had never seen anything like this. That, uh, Jose will tell you they were mischievous little boys because Jose, who was nine, wanted to go aboard and see what happened. And uh, so what they did was they stayed there for a few minutes, ran back to the ranch, uh, they're on horseback, in other words, and told their dad, who called the sheriff. They will give you the details, but what's very important is that it was a three-day recovery, and the military asked Jose's father if they could make a new gate because they could not take out the quote-unquote weather balloon <laughs> through the gate that existed. <laughs> uh, of course, they couldn't say what it was. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the essence. But you mentioned the piece of metal. Well, because they will talk about the Owl Cafe, which was the only watering hole in town where the scientists from Ground Zero from the, from the uh, Trinity site used to go. Oppenheimer used to go there. A lot of people were seen there. The, the military stopped to get um, something to drink or ice cream or whatever. It was the only place to eat in town because they stopped they left the craft unattended, and little Jose, who was nine years old, jumps on the flatbed, goes inside the craft, and with a cheater bar, what he calls a cheater bar, pulls off a handle-like um, piece that I have on my website that I've given you some photos, too, uh, that he just pulls it off and takes it, and then they hide it. They hide it, and they don't tell anybody about it, and this story comes out almost 60 years later. These people are now in their 70s, and I think they just want to tell the truth. And the most important thing, Mel, somebody's letting them. This is, this is uh, able to come out. Somebody is okaying this. And, and this reminds me, although they're totally unrelated, the story of uh, Milton Torres, who had to keep the secret for over 50 years. By the way, have you... Do you have any updates on the health uh, status of Milton? No, but because it's Thanksgiving, I will call his son. He was critically ill uh, when his son called me. He was critically ill, in it, and it's very painful to see these older people that can, you know, now testify and are witnesses, historical witnesses, you know, be, be ill and, and pass on. I will let you know, but, you know, this is all part of... Uh, this is all part of the historical documentation that you and I do. And in my book, the Milton Torres interview is also part of the history. Yes, and I want to know, how did you come in contact with uh, Remy and Jose? Because I have to say, we have to separate a lot of the stories that people come up with. They concoct a lot of stories who may make us look, uh, you know, investigators, true journalists, investigators, they make, make us look bad. However, this is a different story. What makes this story so special, uh, solid, and why are you putting so much uh, stock into it? First of all, I'm a believer there was, that there was heavy observation during the atomic bomb blast on the Trinity site, so I know there's more than one crash. I mean, Roswell gets, the, gets all the glory because it's, it, the people are still around, and it's been done very well. But how I really met Remy was because there was a, a gentleman in Florida that, that contacted me on email and told me his father had flown the bodies out of San Antonio. And he sent me all the documentation on his father as a pilot. 
his father being stationed in San Antonio area near there. Uh, uh, and he talked to me about his father, you know, being heavily involved. He was in New Mexico at the time. And so he mentioned the name Remy Bach, and he told me to get a hold of him. Now, Remy had been contacted by this person, too, and they had, um, uh, you know, talked about this, this situation. And then slowly, over a series of, of, of uh, telephone conversations, Remy began to tell me the story. It isn't like Remy wants any publicity. In fact, one of the questions I think, Mel, if you could ask him, is it's really hard on the families. It was not until Remy and his wife had a sighting where she would even agree to have him tell the story. So this is a burden of truth. It's not only on the witness, but the families. And when Remy began to tell me slowly, over and over again, over the period of a year, and then I began to research some of the background here, I realized he was telling the truth. I needed only to contact the nine-year-old, Jose Padilla, who has a photographic memory and remembers every detail that I realized these guys were not making anything up. This really did happen. They were two little boys that assisted in a historical act. And I think, just on an esoteric level, whoever it is or whatever it is that's out there wants this out. Plus, I think it's timing that this story come out 60 years later. I also wanted to ask you, you probably have noticed that the media has been interviewing a lot of UFO investigators. You get uh, Leslie Kane and, and others. Why And all the movies, all the UFO talk, the, the series, the event, and so on. What do you think is happening here? It's almost as, uh, I don't want to call it disclosure, but in a way, it's a kind of an in-your-face, hidden in plain sight disclosure, Paula. Is that what you, I was going to ask you that question. What do you think is happening here, Mel? <laughs> you know, I'm very skeptical as it relates to disclosure. I, I have to admit, as long as there's people out there who are in control of this planet, I really can't see one valid reason for them to relinquish their control. At the same time, and this may sound contrary to what you might believe, but I always talk about the project from the report from Iron Mountain that uh, Secretary McNamara gave President Kennedy that we always needed to have a threat over our heads in order to keep the economy and the nation strong. First, we have the, and people who are listening are probably saying, gosh, Mel, you should do this in every show, but I have to. You have the Cold War. Once the Cold War is over, you have the War on Terror. Then you have uh, a celestial object or natural disaster approaching. And the last one, an alien invasion. This is not me saying it. This is something that is a government document given to President Kennedy. So I'm very concerned when I see all these shows out there and the ridicule factor is going down, it really makes you wonder if they're getting ready to pull something to fool the population. I hope I'm wrong, Paula. Well, no, I'm glad you talked about that because the people need to be aware uh, the primary motivation for any of my work is historical. I've come to the conclusion that I don't feel disclosure is going to happen the way everybody sees it. And what my work is, is since it's word-for-word -word interviews, I hope the, the, the books and the interviews go into some library in the future where when all these people are dead, they've got their word-for-word. -word. I even have the tape recordings of everybody's testimony. 
So it's up to the people. The people need to know that this is real. This is not a matter of a joke or, uh, you know, some kind of fairy tale. These things did happen. And, and the idea that it would happen around a nuclear uh, you know, facility should make people wake up, that whoever's out there thinks that we could be, uh, you know, headway into destruction. Uh, apart from the fact of the courage of the seven men that were in the Washington Press Club, you know, I, I just interviewed Robert Salas that will be on, uh, on my website. I mean, these guys are talking about the shutdown of missiles and, and, and the nuclear, um, you know, the nuclear facilities and storage areas being, uh, you know, invaded in a way, by, but not hurt. Just a kind of a sign saying, be careful with your nuclear capacities, which is what I think the whole Roswell-San Antonio situation was. And do I think there's going to be disclosure? No, not the way we believe it. However, the people slowly, the ones who care, because there's a lot of people who really do not care, uh, the ones who care will learn that this is a reality and realize that whatever is out there has not hurt us, has not killed us, has not bombed or maimed us, and is trying to give us some message. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with Carol Roz, and I have to say this because she worked with Werner von Braun, who also talked about the false flag situation. And Carol is 100% saying that whatever is here is benign and not a threat because it would have done something to a, a, a crazy humanity a long time ago. I think what we, the violence that we see on TV, the, the murders, the what, I mean, I can't turn the TV on without seeing people really abducted, really killed, and thrown in some trash can. I don't think aliens do that stuff. And, and you know, I think humanity is coming to a, um, a, uh, a, a, you know, a fork in the road where it, it's going to have to grow up, or, or it's going to have to uh, be in some way transformed because it, we need to evolve. We need to get out of our adolescence. We are no longer children. We are spiritual beings. We are divine beings, and we belong to a cosmic family. And I think that a lot of this information it, it, it should show us this if people care. Now, the the San Antonio story is important because. The little boys did witness, did do this, but the people are going to care only about the metal. I know how that's going to happen, which has been analyzed, by the way. But what they need to understand is the timing. It was around the Trinity explosions of the atom bomb that all of this came about. And I think you and I have a, an obligation, Mel. Basically, we just have an obligation to do the story, to tell the truth, and to keep it clean. Absolutely. And speaking of the metal analysis, that's something I'm going to be discussing with Jose and Remy. Have you gotten any information as to what came out of that? Yeah, he showed me the metal analysis because he had it done, and he'll tell you where. Uh, one of the uh, places he had it done was in England, out of the country. Uh, and uh, the, the interesting part, and he wanted to make sure that I knew this, was that there was a page in Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, that talked about uh, an analysis of a piece of, of metal that had integrated circuits in the shape of, like, animal crackers or squashed insects. Corso talks about this. In fact, I have 
the the JPEG or the picture of the of the page in the book where he co- talks about this, and that's exactly what the photo of the uh, electron microscope analysis has. It looks like a bunch of uh, squashed insects, or uh, and and that those were integrated circuits embedded in the metal. Now, how did Corso know about this? I was thinking to myself, of course he must have seen a piece of metal. Of course there's metal out there, and of course. They went and analyzed it for him to even say such a thing. So I think that a lot more of the hidden material is going to be coming out. Now, how much effect it's going to have on anybody, I don't know. I'm just hoping that anybody that is doing serious research reads these books, listens to these interviews, and tries to connect the dots. And whenever we have these conversations, I think of Edgar Mitchell. When we had our, our talk last year, he talked about how in order for us to ascend and be able to go to other planets and interact with our, let's call it a cosmic neighborhood, we need to evolve at the same pace technologically and spiritually. But it seems that we keep repeating the same pattern over and over again, and we advance technologically, and we probably get rid of ourselves again and again. And I'm not saying that every single extraterrestrial race may be benign, but you're right. I think that if they have evolved to the point of being able to deploy themselves from one solar system to another, they must have a, 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 a they must have evolved spiritually to the point that they respect the idiosyncrasies, the way we conduct ourselves, and maybe the the whole uh, non-intervention policy that they have is true, and that's why they have not shown themselves uh, more in public. And they and disclosure to me. Is happening at a gra- it's happening at a grassroots level. I mean, all you have to do is talk to all the contactees, and I know some of them may not be telling the truth, but there are some that you just cannot dismiss, Paula. Oh, no. I, you know, they, they do have messages, and they don't need to be taken aboard the ship to get them uh, anymore. The, uh, the last conversation I had with John Mack, Dr. John Mack, yes. and this may interest you, he said that he was getting fewer and fewer actual abduction cases, he was getting direct download cases, people that had, you know, been directly downloaded that had these visions, these dreams, these, um, they, they had these ideas, these transformations, and I believe him. I think that, you know, the average person that's contacted today is just a person that, is, uh, that has changed their lives because of, of ideas or Dreams are, uh, you know, a lot of technological, a lot of scientists have been contacted. I've done a lot of interviews with scientists that have gotten these amazing, uh, you know, downloads about free energy. Now, do we need to have that? Yeah. I mean, if we keep doing what we're doing, it's not going to work. Our problem is this, Mel, and I'm going to put this out for you, is that a vision of a, an evolved race should be like the Star Trek vision. And if you remember, it's not based on economics. There's no money stuff in Star Trek. There's, it's not based on banks and, and credit and, and, and materialism. Uh, Roddenberry had an incredible vision for our transformation into a cosmic age. And uh, that's why there's so many really great Roddenberry Star Trek people out there, because Somehow, on some kind of level, they saw a truth, and we're going to have to get used to the fact that whatever's out there does not look like us, does not even act like us, and could be so foreign that we can't recognize it. And that's what the Star Trek groups 
uh, look like, you know? I mean, we have to get over the diversity thing. And in talking with you about this and, and, and the fact that money is what rules the world right now, it's the paradigm we live in. I think of the late Terrence McKenna, who defined the dominator culture that we live in as hierarchical, paternalistic, materialistic, male-dominated, an evolu- evolutionary maladaptive. We have to change that. And if I were an extraterrestrial being looking at planet Earth and knowing that we have the capability of destroying ourselves with nuclear weapons, I would think these are children playing with matches. And this is something I'll discuss briefly with uh, Remy and Jose today, because during my conversation with him, he said, you know, during the time when we were children, it was green. That area was green. And after the nuclear testing, that area now is completely dead There's nothing growing there. So if anybody tells you that the area where the nuclear bombs were tested was inclusive to that area and radiation did not cross over to other areas, is lying, folks. What's your take on that? Well, absolutely. And we're only talking about the Trinity site. But in my book, my first book, I interviewed Guy Andronique, who was a geophysicist on the Bikini Atoll of Fangatofa in the Pacific Islands. And there... There, the French did 800 blasts, 800. Do you know what it did to the coral and the fish and so forth? Mm. And the reason why I interviewed him, because the UFOs flew over on two occasions when Guy was there. They even followed the UFOs on an airplane. Did the UFOs do anything to them? No. Did they fly over? Yes. What are they telling the, 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 the French uh, you know, scientists that were trying out the, the H-bomb there? The, that maybe they shouldn't be killing the fish, the coral, and everything else. So it's not just the Trinity site. We're having problems with people that are, or countries that are testing these very dangerous weapons that could just destroy humanity. And I think that's a very serious message. And when people start thinking of hostility of the beings, well, the beings could destroy you in two seconds if they wanted to. They just fly over. They make themselves seen. Uh, they make themselves, uh, they, uh, they appear. And if anybody really does research, you'll realize that all, either on the eclipse cycles or the historical cycles, we've had what's called sightings, if they look at the sightings. And I think that, that the people that are awake, and there's some of them out there, Mel, that are awake, uh, will understand that they are hidden messages, non in invasive, you know, they're kind of subliminal, they're, they're messages that maybe things are coming down to the wire, we're coming to the finish line, we're coming to make decisions about how this is going to go. You mentioned that Remy and Jose are probably being allowed to speak of their story now. Why do you think that's the case? And also a very important, very important piece of this puzzle was the fact that they were hiding this piece of metal for over 60 years, obviously in a very clever way, right? Well, they hid it in the, in the uh, shack of the sheep herder. Yeah. And, and I hope he, you ask him about that because they hid it under the floorboards of the sheep herder's shack. And uh, the sheep herder came in to uh, Padilla's father one day and said, look, I had a very terrible dream. I dreamed these creatures were coming through the wall looking for Tesoro. Now, that's what they named the piece, was Treasure Tesoro. Oh, Tesoro, And the yes. poor sheep herder did not know the, <laughs> the piece was there. And he had had this dream, which was not a dream. I'm sure the beings wanted their 
panel back uh, and uh, went through the the waltz to, to looking for it. And so I uh, have Remy tell you that story because the sheep herder had no idea what the beings looked like. He had never seen them, and and uh, and uh, he didn't understand why they were in his room. Uh, so the thing is that yes, the, the military came and asked the little boys if they had taken anything. Uh, and the, it said, it's very important you give it back to us, but you need to have Remy talk to you about the piece that was like the tin foil that Jesse Marcel describes that, you know, you scrunch up, it goes back to its uh, original shape. He kept that in his uh, Philip Morris can, which I, you know, photographed his Philip Morris can, uh, and he'll, he'll tell you what he did with that because there's all kinds of different pieces that were part of the craft. He said that the one that Jose took out was the interior of the craft. So there's that's the solid piece. That's the solid piece, right? The one I saw. Yeah, uh, they have a very big piece. Yeah, it looks like a handle. Okay. Because he pulled it off a panel. The panel was against the wall, and and he ch- he pried it off. He took a, a cheater bar. Or he, it's like a crowbar, and he pulled. He he used the bar to pull it off the panel. But in the drawings that they gave me, I've got a picture of the entire panel and what was on the panel and the, the dimensions and everything like that, the, the, you know, of, on the wall of the inside of the craft. We have very few testimony of being on the inside of the craft, especially by a nine-year-old boy who, who I don't think can make things up. Uh, so it's, it's a real historical case. And, and you mentioned before the, the telling of it. I'm convinced because when I first heard about it and then they were giving me the details, I thought, well, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this story. I, I don't know if this story is supposed to come out. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, these are, you know, pieces of a puzzle that I've been asking about for a long time. But I am thoroughly convinced that, of course, our phone calls are being monitored. Uh, uh, everything is being monitored. And whoever is out there that is directing the disclosure flow is okay with the story. Otherwise, you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have the story. I've already given it to a magazine in Italy with all the photographs, and, you know, it's coming out in UFO Matrix in Great Britain. Uh, it's coming out in England. Uh, and, uh, you, know, this is the, you know, these months are the first time it's coming out in the United States. And I think that, who, that whatever is directing the disclosure flow, and I'm convinced, and most of my military witnesses are convinced that it's a slow process release of information, thinks it's okay. It's, it's okay. A slow drip process so that the population is not shocked. That's why they have all these movies, and, and I wish some of the movies were a little bit more positive. Uh, you know, they can mention the movie Skyline. If anybody hasn't seen it, don't go. It's not worth it. But anyway... I don't want to give it away because I want Remy and Jose to tell the story. But when you think about the story, it's not a sighting. It's not that they saw something for a minute or two and it was gone. This happened for days. These children were going back and forth to the area where the craft had crashed. And to the point where first it was alone, they saw the beings. And what kind of a close encounter of what kind would you consider this one to be? Oh, this is close encounter of the third kind, absolutely, because when the little boy, uh, when Remy uh, was looking at these beings, he's getting pictures in his mind. I mean, they were, they were flashing stuff. They were flashing images to him. And he, 
in his lifetime has, you know, he then he talked about his life, which was really interesting. He couldn't tell this story until his wife had had a sighting in 94 over their house in Washington State because she didn't believe in UFOs mm-hmm. and the family would have been disrupted. But all his life he said he's been very intuitive, so much so that he can even guess the numbers on the lottery. Hmm. I don't think that's an accident. I think that this is the only language these beings have. Uh, and so that if you're in contact with these beings, that you've got a heightened awareness, a heightened ESP, a heightened sixth sense. And, and, and Remy's been aware of that. He, he, he knows that because he was, especially when you're a little kid, you know, and you have this happen. And, you know, if you really study the story the way I did, they're all related down there in at San Antonio. There was even a relationship with the, uh, Ronnie Zamora, the Zamora case down there. If you that, that was a, a, a proven UFO uh, situation, and uh, uh, the Sheriff Apodaca and those guys, because in that area of New Mexico, all kinds of anomalous things happened, and there was a lot of talk. So they could you know uh, talk to each other. It became almost normal. The Roswell situation, you know, the, the crash at Corona, Corona, Aztec, and all of, yeah, this plains of St. Augustine. I mean, I don't think these things just came along and crashed all over the place just because it's an accident. There was heavy observation, and with the radar towers that were there, it interfered in a navigation system. And, and uh, I think that this was a historical time in history a, a, a real key time where we have a lot to learn from these crashes. Now, the fact that this is two months after the atomic bomb uh, and the first one will help researchers try to put two and two together here. They will try to figure out what was going on in that area. And one aspect I want to discuss with them because it, it, it cut my attention, and I don't remember exactly what he said, Remy, that is, that... Remy was telling me that Jose's father, a policeman, went with them to the area where the craft had crashed, and the both of them went inside the craft, and once they came out, they were not the same. Did you discuss with with them? No, I'm glad you brought that up, see, but I'm excited that other people will will really work with this too. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, what I did ask Jose, uh, I did ask him yesterday, as a matter of fact, if he, if he, when he went in, he saw any kind of writing or hieroglyphics or something like, you know, Jesse Marcel saw the I beams. And he said, no, it was clean. What he said was, it was clean and it was dark. And so I, you know, no, I didn't. But I, it's really interesting because if there was a crash, it could have been that they were dead beings in there. The ones that uh, the boys saw were sliding back and forth, and they'll tell you what they look like. But uh, apart from being the great type, uh, Remy keeps using the word uh, Capomocha. Yeah, yeah, which is it's kind of a mantis type. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's referring to uh, the eyes more than anything. Uh, the, 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 the eyes were, you know, insect Insectoid, eyes. yeah. Yeah, insectoid-type eyes, but it, 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 since they, you know, were humanoid and they had two arms, two legs, and, and uh, you know, some kind of bodysuit on, I, I'm sure that it's, you know, Colonel Corso's idea of this, because it's so foreign, was that these are, um, you know, biological entities, extraterrestrial, created in the laboratory to fly a ship. So you can't necessarily attach personalities to these beings. 
they're able to fly a ship, whether they do it in hyperspace or regular space or whatever. Uh, and you can't necessarily project humanity on them. So they're very different type beings. But whatever uh, communication uh, device they used, it was telepathic because you can ask Remy about the feelings he had when he was looking at these beings. Their story sounds a little bit familiar. Not that it's the same, but uh, you remember the case of Leo Dor. Uh, I had the book around here somewhere. Leo Dorshak from... Uh, Idaho, I think it was, in the 20s. And it was a similar story where they saw the beings and they had put a force field so they couldn't pass through it. So a lot of has happened before 1947. But as you say, that is the most advertised and publicly known case. But once again, what is the name of your upcoming book? It's called Exopolitics Stargate to a New Reality. Uh, and uh, it has this case in the very, very back. It's a some like a 50-page interview, word for word, with the with uh, Remy and Jose and Remy's wife Virginia, who had the sighting with Remy uh, in Washington State. Uh, you know the thing that you're talking about, Roswell. We've got to know one thing that's ironic, though, Mel, and you'll recognize this that the Air Force still say, after all these years, that Roswell was. Mogul balloon with crash test dummy. Uh, and we all know We're the crash we all know the crash test dummies didn't come until the fifties, but that's a different story. Oh, I wanted to ask you. I recently interviewed a gentleman with the name of Anthony Sanchez who allegedly has an interview with the a retired Air Force Colonel who validated everything that Colonel Corso had said, and even Paul Halyard said the same thing. He spoke to somebody who said Corso was right and then some. What's your take on all these people that are coming out and validating what Corso had said? Poor Corso. He was Army. If the Air Force had done the same thing, Corso would have had help. But remember that in 1947, the Army Air Force was together. They, was, they were yes. not split up. You know, They were not competing for government contracts. They were not split up. They were one. And I think that some of those artifacts went to the Air Force in 1948, when they became the Air Force, and there was back engineering going on with the Air Force. The Army was the one that had a Corso, and Corso got the, the, the artifacts in 60, 1960s, in the 60s, which is way late. So, of course, it was back engineered before then. So the argument that people are using was that, that, that it was in the mainstream before them, of course. But mostly, if you talk to Remy about the back engineering, he will agree 100%. Now, somebody like Paul Hellyer, who is ex-defense minister, verifies Corso. It's easy for him because he has access to military. He verifies it. I don't know why we still have researchers and debunkers out there going after Corso when you've got the ex-defense minister of a major country saying he verified it. And one last thing, I think, once again, about Edgar Mitchell, when he told me that in less than 100 years, his great-grandparents came in covered wagons from the east to the to the west and he went to the moon all in the span of 100 years the technological explosion that has occurred in the 20th century out of the blue in less than 50 years so much has happened i i don't use the word believe i want to know but i get this the sensation that we got some help 
because all this uh, fiber optics, the, the computer power that we have, and we all know that the government releases technology to us that's 50 years less than what they have, or even more. What's your take on that? Well, the thing, Mel, is that, I, you know, Remy will tell you, there was some white substance there that looked like angel hair. And mm-hmm. I had done the Charles Hall story, and he had seen a, cra- a craft, be, uh, you know, in, in uh, trouble, in distress. And he had seen white powder that he said were burnt fiber optics. Right. So that craft that they had, oh, that angel hair stuff, was burnt fiber optics in 1945. So what do I think? I think that there are two worlds. I think that the the world of advanced technology, that advanced technology that might have a deep space platform up in the 1950s, that's one of my interviews in my book, and that Gary McKinnon finds, in 1950s before we went to the moon, uh, okay, so we have one group that is working, you know, silently and secretly, and then we have... NASA, uh, we're looking at, you know, what's going on in, in uh, Florida. So we've got two different worlds. We have one world, which, you know, you may call it the black ops world, the shadow world or whatever, that has advanced technology for many reasons, you know, and, 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 it, and it does drive an economy. And then we have what we're looking at. We have the, the very primitive type thing we're looking at. Look, the most primitive thing we have right now, too, is using gasoline in the car. Yes. You know, we, we're in two different realities. Uh, that one reality could probably save the planet and help us, you know, proceed uh, for our children and our children's children's children. And the other is being held back by greed and, you know, lack of values and so forth. And, and it's very sad because I think the story is bigger than just UFOs. And I think uh, Corso, in my opinion, you cannot be such a science fiction writer at the dawn of your life. And one area that really impressed me about him was the how they well they were would recover the craft, and he was in charge of the technology recovered. They would reverse engineer it, and they would give it to private contractors to come out and say, well. We developed this, now the world can use it, they can sell it, and nobody has to know where it came from. Isn't that the epitome of plausible deniability? Absolutely. In fact, there's a story in my new book about Corso's talking to a doctor here in Colorado about an instrument that he had, what he calls his nut file or his tray of artifacts, that not only cut uh, flesh, but sutured it up. Hmm. It closed it. And this, this instrument, these doctors that were working on this, found in Russia. So they're using it in Russia. But we don't have this instrument here readily available. And this instrument probably, it has, it's laser-based. And Corso talked about this instrument because this doctor wanted to use it, wanted to have it. And Corso just said, look, the deal was this, that the Army gave out the contracts. We were to use it first, and then they could give it out to the American people. And this was in the 60s that he, that he had the actual artifacts. But believe it or not, Corso knew about UFOs. He knew about aliens way back before then. He just couldn't talk about it because he said that he was a, a loyal soldier, which he was. He was a loyal patriot, which he was. And in those days, if you study the history of all this, everybody was afraid the Russians would get everything first. Right. So it was top secret because we had this Cold War. We had this 
this area. A lot of people still think Russians are our major enemies, which, you know, if you, if you really look at this, uh, you know, our, our tr- uh, trek into outer space should not be one country. It should be the planet Earth that goes out among the stars. It should not be that we're bringing our individual differences among the planets. So I think we have a lot to resolve here. Corso was a personal friend. If people want to read his notes, which are undisputable, they're on Open Minds TV. They have been given to Open Minds by Corso's son, Open Minds TV. And the name of his original notes are the dawn of a new age. And absolutely what you just said. It's so pathetic that if we ever have to go to another planet, that we have to plant the flag of the United States or the flag of Russia or the flag of a country, as opposed to being citizens of a planet who come in peace. But, Paula, one last thing. Dr. Carol Rosin, I cannot tell you how much I want to interview her, and I hope that you can help me finally get her. I know she's been under a lot of trepidation to continue telling her story. Uh, You know, she had some... some, uh, I don't want to say attacks, but she has some people criticize her, and I hope she can come forward and uh, not let the lecture or the speech that she gave during the 2001 Disclosure Project be the only one. I hope that we can interview her soon. Carol Rosen, yes. Yes. Well, you know, uh, if you're going to be at the International UFO Congress, Carol Rosen uh, will be there. She okay. said she would, she probably, she's been invited, and by the way, so is Paul Hallier, so... Uh, you know, they will be there. You know, uh, she will come forth, you know, I think eventually, but she's just very upset with the field because, uh, as you know, and I do agree with them, as, as Stephen Greer says, there's a retail ufology field <laughs> that, that it's, it's not as serious as we'd like to see it, and there's a lot of competition and backbiting and fighting and all this and all that, which is not conducive to research, you know. It's like we should all be sitting down comparing notes, which is the way you get somewhere if you're doing real research. So the thing is that she's kind of put off by that. But, you know, she, uh, she has been invited to, to Phoenix, Arizona, and we're hoping that, that she will be there because she did work with Werner von Braun and also has so much information to share with everybody. So, yeah, let's hope for the best. And, you know, Mel, in the end, if it's grassroots, it's the listeners and it's the people that need to do something about it, that need to care. They really need to, to do it for the history of the planet, for their children, for their grandchildren. And that's really my motivation anymore. Absolutely. And I don't think the, the infighting is conducive to anything. We may all disagree with each other today or tomorrow, but if you disagree, just move on. Everybody has something important to say. It's our job to discern and put the pieces of the puzzle together. Paula, what's your website once again? How to get in touch with your great work? Okay, my website and this story with the pictures is on there is www.paolaharris.com. PaulaHarris.com. And I have that plus an interview with uh, Robert Salas on my website. People can reach me through my website. And as these stories come out, and as I archive history, we'll be, you know, getting closer to the truth. I just hope that the listening public, you know, really does appreciate the bravery uh, of a lot of these witnesses that come forth. And Paul, I want to thank you for your hard work in getting these stories out. Very important that Remy and Jose chose you 
because uh, of your research and your ethic. And I also have to thank you because Veritas owes a lot to Paula Harris. She has been instrumental in where we are. We never thought that we would be on the air more than a show or two, and it's been two years. So for that, uh, the worldwide audience thanks you, uh, Paula. Well, thank you, and I know the audience loves you, Mel. You're very professional, and you're very caring and compassionate. So thank you for all you do. We're all in this together. Thank you. Well, be well, my friend, and uh, now we're going to proceed and speak with Jose Padilla, Paula Harris. Once again, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Mel. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 